Girl Mode, episode number 21. I'm one of your hosts, Robin B. And I'm Willa Rowe. So we've got a, a decent number of topics uh, to talk about, weirdly timely for once. Uh, but before we jump into those, I have some breaking news for you, Willa, that I, I don't know if you saw this. Okay. okay. Uh, I'm sending you a link right now. Oh, I just want to get your talk to me. I know. Okay. Yeah. So you sprung this on me one time. We recorded a few weeks ago that the uh, Nier Automata anime was coming back, which was very exciting. It had previously been postponed because of like a COVID scare at the uh, the animator. It like wasn't totally clear exactly what happened, but you know they were indefinitely delayed because of COVID. And then a couple of weeks later, they were like, actually, everything's great. And so they started putting out episodes again. I think they released episode like four through eight. And then this week it was reported that production had shut down again uh, because of COVID again. So episode eight of the anime is out now, but it seems like the rest of the series is back to being on hiatus. Guess we'll just have to wait another month. Yeah, it's a very st- it's very strange. I don't know what to make of it. It just makes me sad. I did start uh, watching the show again, <laughs> and now it's kind of a stop and start. Their schedule of production is much like my schedule of watching the show, which is I remember that it exists, and I watch a bunch of episodes in a row, and then I stop for a while. It was just getting really good. A2 showed up now. Oof. Yeah. I wasn't actually caught up. I started watching the episodes that I hadn't seen, and then I was like... This just makes you want to play the game. So I started playing the game again. Uh, but maybe someday the anime will finish and we can we can see how it goes. I saw a, um, a great take that was so basically like in Japan, they are airing old episodes like in the slot instead of the new episodes. Hmm. And somebody was like, maybe this is just a galaxy brain plan, because when you play the game, you have to replay things over and over again. Yeah, And this is just it's all part of it. Uh, But aside from once again, being sad about this show's weird status, the kind of big news of the week is that the Diablo 4 early access open beta was this weekend. So Diablo 4 is coming out in June, I believe. Uh, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. June 6th, because it's 6-6. Six, six. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> two-thirds of the way to being like a cool Satan reference or whatever. But this weekend, there was an open beta. There's another one next weekend uh, that anyone is allowed into. The one for this weekend. Uh, well, originally, you, you were supposed to have pre-ordered the game, and that gets you access to, to the open beta for this weekend. Uh, you had access because uh, you're a professional journalist, and I had access because I bought a chicken sandwich <laughs> yes. that gave me a terrible stomach ache. Uh, we are not the same. Crucially, uh, you didn't get the double down, though. No. Okay. So for anyone who is extremely confused... Uh, a couple days before the beta launched, there was a tweet from Blizzard that was like, oh yeah, by the way, if you want to get into the beta this weekend, we're running a promotion with KFC. And if you buy a Double Down, which is their sandwich that is like, I believe the it's just two chicken patties <laughs> like stacked on top of each with, other. With like cheese and bacon in the middle. <sighs> yeah. If you, So if you bought this monstrosity you would get access to the beta Uh, but in the fine print it also specified that you can also just buy a regular chicken sandwich and because i hate myself but i don't hate myself that much i did not buy the double down i bought a regular chicken sandwich i should say i'm like 99.9 percent vegetarian i eat meat like 
once every couple of months. But I, I'm also broke, so I wasn't going to just buy the sandwich and not eat it. And that also feels wasteful, which I would feel bad about. So I ate it and I had a terrible stomachache. <laughs> and I texted you about it all day about how sad yeah. I was. Uh, but it did give me access to this Diablo 4 beta. I still uh, think... Say, I still think that I should get the double down just just for content for shits yeah, and giggles. Yeah, our plan was that we were going to review the beta and the double down just because that's a funny idea. But we're um, cowards. But we're not self-destructive enough for that. I will say I do think that the image that they posted for this promotion is my single favorite thing ever. It's so gnarly. Um, <laughs> I sent it to you. It's yes. just Lilith. She's just looking over the double down sandwich. It's pretty yeah. great. Just gazing intensely at this mm-hmm. like mountain of chicken and cheese. I'm yeah. going to scroll up so I don't have to look at that. <laughs> but I would say my stomach ache was was worth the price of admission. We played the, the Diablo 4 beta. We, we spent like a, a good portion of yesterday, like pretty much all of yesterday afternoon playing mm-hmm. it. Uh, and I think we had a lot of... It was kind of a roller coaster of emotions we had, <laughs> but I think my, you know, in the end, I came out pretty positive on it. But yeah, do you want to just talk about your kind of general like reaction to the beta before we get into sort of specifics? Yeah, I mean, for me, my general reaction I think can be summed up as meh. Yes, it's fine. It is yeah. Diablo, which is generally a reaction to most video <laughs> games. I feel <laughs> You're just like, yep, you did. What's it. that supposed to mean? <laughs> You know exactly what that's supposed to yeah, mean. You've read your own reviews, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so the Diablo 4 open beta was uh, pretty pretty open as far as these things go. You could make like up to 10 characters. You could play as much as you like as long as you want. Uh, and you can play the entirety of like act one, which only covers really like a couple hours of, of gameplay. But um, on top of those things, there's like all kinds of events and things in the world you can go on. There were seemingly no restrictions on the kind of builds you could make and stuff. So it seems like it it gives a pretty fair indication of what the game is like. Mm -hmm. So if you've played the Diablo series before, you know, it's this like weird story about like, you know, angels and devils fighting and human beings caught in the middle. And Diablo 4 like continues that. It continues the storyline of the previous games. But if you haven't played them or didn't pay attention to the story like i play have played all of the diablo games and couldn't tell you what's going on the story remains as ignorable as ever uh it's all just very like grim dark fantasy shit the real point of the game is endlessly clicking on little demons to explode them into geysers of blood uh and the demo provided plenty of that so i we quickly went in... realized i was like ah this is just a game about catholic guilt love it it's... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and murdering Catholic guilt with mm-hmm. a with a broadsword. So we went to you could play three classes in the in the, the beta. Uh, there was the sorcerer, the barbarian and the rogue. Uh, so you played the sorceress. I played the rogue. Yeah. I tried the barbarian. I thought I found it very boring. So I gave up quite quickly. But I think we both, despite your meh reaction, I think we both like liked the classes we picked pretty well. Yeah, I, I like had to mess around with the skill tree for a little bit to like find what I wanted because when you're playing as a sorceress you basically you know you can do a bunch of different elemental like attacks and you know skills and stuff um and I started doing fire originally but as I got more skills I was like I 
was look I was like looking at the lightning skills and I was like these mm-hmm. look really cool so I'm just gonna reset my skill tree and redo it and then um the lightning ones were really really good yeah except for flame wall which is maybe the best <laughs> skill in the game yeah that was like an incredible moment in our time playing this game is when you discovered flame wall and then it just became flame wall the video game it's absurd i could cast it like four times in a row without having to wait and it just hordes would just walk right into it and they would just like stand in it and just burn so fast it is what it sounds like it is a wall made of fire that you can just put on the ground and it just destroys everything uh including like my cpu whenever you did that <laughs> but I, I did stick around after you left uh I, I did mention i wanted to try the sorceress as we were playing mm-hmm. so i played for like another half hour or so just messing around with it and the like lightning whip skill which yeah. is like one of the first skills you get is incredibly fun to use uh it's i mean it, again it's just what it sounds it's just like a big wave your wand and hit things with lightning and it's very there's something i really like about playing a like frontline mage you know where you're like a wizard who is like right there in melee just like hitting things with like a battle mage basically about yeah exactly it's it's very cool we did skip uh, a very important part though which is the character creator yes like i have lots Diablo of thoughts Force on this. hot woman generator <laughs> that is true it is equally the best and worst part because <laughs> honestly it's great for just making really really hot <laughs> gay looking women which is why i chose barbarian in the first place i was like yeah i'm gonna be a seven foot tall jacked barbarian lady <laughs> But then I had a lot of gripes with it because, like, the hair. They got to get on that hair stuff. Awful, yeah. The hair is awful. None of the colors are bright enough. Yeah, the colors are bad, and even the styles were pretty, pretty terrible, Mm -hmm. which was a bummer. I wanted to give my character green hair, but the green hair just looked like muddled brown. Yeah, which is kind of a theme, it seems, in Diablo 4, which is that no matter what color it is, it's always kind of muddled brown. Yeah, seriously. Um, I think one of our most consistently negative critiques as we were playing was how the game looks, which um, I've seen a lot of reactions from folks on Twitter talking about how good this game looks. And I think this is where a distinction we've made previously when we talked about like the God of War's realistic trees uh, comes back into play, which is like drawing the distinction between technically impressive graphics and aesthetically interesting art. Mm-hmm. If you are talking about fidelity and lighting effects and the kind of like technical aspects of of a game's art style, uh, Diablo Four is a great looking game. Uh, it's got it's got all kinds of polygons. It's uh, everything looks nice and shiny. But if we're talking about at least you know in the couple hours we got to play the kind of the art style, it's very. They stepped so Diablo 3 was like criticized for being too colorful, which is an insane thing to say if you've seen the game because it's not very colorful. But compared to like the original games, which were very dark and kind of this had this squalid look to them, it was a big difference. Diablo 4 goes back to the kind of like Diablo 2 looking art style, which is to say kind of gray and flat. We we got to some point at the very end of the the beta, you get to a much more interesting aesthetically zone, but it's still just like so drained of color and, and everything just kind of 
looks muddy and rolls into each other to the point where it becomes difficult sometimes to even see like enemies or make out the terrain you're supposed to be walking on. Yeah, so that was I would like a, say, a big grape that we had. Yeah, the like ninety percent of the game looks just completely the same. Like you were, you were saying, it's almost like it looks like it's randomly generated and just piecemealed together, like with the same building blocks. That's all gray. There was that like there's the one big dungeon that I did like, though, and that was the one place there was like a bit of color, though, because it had all these like glowing bluish gray blue magic like flowing through like pillars and stones. But even in that dungeon, dungeon, the organ dungeon was a little more colorful, too. Yeah, I like the organ dungeon, too, because like it was still that like gross Diablo, like weird demonic stuff, but it just Mm -hmm. felt a little bit more interestingly designed than yes anything you saw in like the overworld which is what makes me think it's the final game like it will be a better experience because i'm sure like it will get more interesting as it goes on of course but just from what we've seen like the the opening areas are like muddy gray forest snowy forest other muddy forest like it's just it's it's pretty pretty unoriginal until you get to those really interesting looking dungeons that kind of like are the the sort of final story beats in in the beta. Uh, but yeah, you mentioned a, a comment that it made as we were playing was that like it it feels like the levels are randomly generated in a way, uh, which is not so much about the art style as about, I guess, like the level design of it, where there's just sort of like endless numbers of like chambers when you're, you know, investigating like an old like arcane archive or whatever. There's just all these rooms with nothing in them and like the path through it is not very clear uh the same thing like when you're outdoors you're kind of just wandering around and like for as long as we played like i never really got a sense of how different parts of the world were connected or i didn't start to gain that sort of familiarity you get when you stay in the sort of same neighborhood of the game for a while like it all just felt I don't know. I don't want to say slapped together because that implies a sort of like a lack of care on the part of the developers, which I would not think is the case. But there was just maybe it was something about the the melding of that that very flat visual style with the need to fill an open world with just a lot of terrain that made it feel like no area had a real sense of personality to me. I, yeah, I don't I don't know how you how you felt about that though. I would agree, and I think for me and. Hopefully this is something that I feel like you would see in the game when it comes out in full. One of the things I was like annoyed about was I felt like town centers and cities had no personality, mm, which that's sure. mostly where I expect a game to have like some more interesting design to like differentiate like towns and the people that live there and stuff like that. But it was all just like, eh, it's it's all the same. Just go sell your junk, leave. Yeah, yeah. Those things just seem to really, really lack a lot of personality, like you said. The thing that I didn't love about it, and it's not like a criticism of Diablo 4 specifically, it's just a reason why I don't like often play these types of games. I was like, yeah, all you do is you sit around and you kind of click very mindlessly, and it doesn't even look very interesting. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's just because it's like, it's that category of games where it's it's the game that lets you just talk with your bros. Yes. <laughs> and that's why it's there. And that's why it's also not colorful. It doesn't need to be. Yeah. Which is like, I, and you know, that, that part of it's enjoyable. Like I had a really good time uh, playing through this thing yesterday. But it's I, as like once we finished playing, I was thinking about it because we even commented on like it got to be quite late in the day before either of us really noticed it. 
And I think that's a thing that these games can really do. Uh, there's something about the like repetitive nature of them that like time really just melts away. And when you're playing with somebody and like just kind of like the the game is there, but you're mostly just kind of like chatting and, and using it as background noise. Uh, it's really, really fun. But then the thought of like doing that on your own, I think is much more of a drag. Like I have a habit of like sinking into games like this at, at certain times and it's just like i can very much remember like days that i lost to like you know diablo 3 or other games of this style mm-hmm. that end up feeling completely like wasted because you're you're just doing the same things over and over and i think that's i don't know that's always going to be a problem with games like this but like you're saying when the world that you're you're exploring has this kind of lack of personality i think it really amplifies that effect of like well what am i doing like this this all even looks the same you know the only color in the game was either the bright red that a number is lower than what you have or the bright green if it's higher <laughs> than what you had yeah exactly uh, and we like as we were playing, we mentioned we ended up talking about Torchlight Two mm-hmm. a number of times, which is a game of this exact style of the you know the endless clicking type of game. But it's a game that we we're both really fond of, and part of that is that like it has a lot of personality, it has a lot of style. Like the art is very colorful and cartoony, and even like I can think back on it and like levels and even like certain parts of the world, like like very like specific you know, sort of corridors or whatever, I can still remember, like, the game just, like, sticks in your memory because there is so much personality and so much style and, you know, helps it feel like more of a, like, a more varied experience. And I just really wonder how Diablo 4 is going to manage that if it's going for a, intentionally, a very washed out kind of palette Mm -hmm. and a more, quote unquote, realistic environments for its levels. Yeah, I will say one of the biggest frustrations that uh, we kept having was for a game that is like specifically meant to be played with friends in co-op, the co-op experience is so weird. Oh, yeah, it's pretty busted. (laughs) Because like you have to, you know, you join your friend's party and you transfer into their game, but you only make progress on like the party host's world in whatever part of the quest they are at. But then if you go back to your own world after making, like you could be playing for, as we did for like hours, making so much progress, like getting to the end of act one. And then you can go back to your own world. It's like, well, this is your own world. So you're actually back at like the second quest. And you also like, if you're not the host of the game, you don't, you're not getting like rewards for quests too. So you would have to go back and play through all of that again, which seems like, for a game that that is built around co-op, it seems so wild. Like we were mentioning, you know, if you were to get this game and like want to have like a regular group to play with, if the person who was hosting can't make it one night, you just have to everybody start from the beginning or like <laughs> just don't play that night, uh, which seems like a huge, a really baffling decision yeah. if that's what it is. More accurately, I, the conversation was, I said, wouldn't it be funny if you got a friend to play this game with you and then you got to the very last quest and then you just never played with them again? Right. Because you were a sadist. So that's yeah. the way that you, you internalized <laughs> it. But yeah, I think even more than like most games of this type, which are very kind of co-op focused, like Diablo 4 is an online game. Like it's it's basically an MMO. And like this is a beta, like part of it is to stress test the servers and like see how that stuff is working. So you expect a lot of kinks there. Mm-hmm. But I got to say, like, it seems disastrously implemented. 
so there's like these towns, you know, spread throughout the, the the world. And it seems clear that when you go into town, you see more people than you do when you're kind of out in the wild. And so every time I stepped into a town or even got close to one, my computer would just start chugging because it's like trying to connect to show all of these different people. And it just like being in towns was completely unworkable. Uh, even like, like if there were more people around, it got even worse. Like I remember there was a point where I was trying to like change my skills or something. And I had to go find like a weird back corner of this town to stand in because the game just like stopped loading when I when there were too many people around. It wasn't even just in city centers because when we were exploring like the world and we would like cross like an invisible line into a new area. <laughs> yes. It would like our game would be at risk of just like disconnecting because all of a sudden we would hit like invisible walls and one of us would like make it through and the other one would just be like blocked at the wall just running against it and like literally it would take like a minute to just keep running at the wall till the game was like oh actually you're allowed to keep going yeah which was funny but also (laughs) very annoying (laughs) and another element of like the the online thing is they spawn like world bosses as they're calling which is you know what it sounds like a big boss will just appear somewhere in the overworld and everybody who's on your server can just go and fight it together which happened i guess like three times during the beta which we didn't realize until the last time had already happened so we just didn't get to experience that i'm very curious about how that would have how that would have gone like if if the servers could like handle it at all Yeah, that is a good question but it just like Aside from that, it just really, and that's an, that's an, inter- I think that's an interesting idea. Like I'll give it credit that like, if they could pull that off, like that's something that like World of Warcraft did sometimes where just like it's random boss would spawn in the wild and everybody goes and fights it and it's fun. Something that Final Fantasy 14 does similarly mm-hmm. where, you know, there's some bosses that you can spawn out in the world and there's, you know, can be really enjoyable, but I really just, yeah, I don't know. I wonder what it adds to a game like this uh, and if it's worth the the trade-offs that seem to be developing with like stability (laughs) yeah you know if you're excited about diablo what you should do is you should play final fantasy 14 and just play eureka (laughs) yes it's yeah you'll get the same experience Mm -hmm. i did like how they had those like little world events that were scattered around the map and every time we were just like oh we have to go do a fate (laughs) yes (laughs) they are just final fantasy 14 Mm -hmm. fates and those are cool and again like i can see them being interesting but like I think there is overall like a, a real problem in online games that like hasn't been solved or necessarily even like attempted to be solved or even articulated, which is like, how do you make these run-ins with other players actually feel meaningful? Because in like in an MMO, if you're seeing thousands of other people at a time, they kind of just become like NPCs, you know, mm-hmm. if you're like in the middle of a town. And as you're like out doing a quest or something and someone runs by you and is doing something similar, you tend to just kind of ignore each other. And I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of untapped potential for like, I don't know, how, obviously how this would be done. But if the, if you could find a way to make those interactions feel more momentous, you know, you're out in the wild and you're you're fighting this battle and suddenly this this person comes, you know, out of nowhere and like the stranger is coming to help you or, you know, however that that plays out. Like, I feel like there's a lot of rich ground there for that to feel really meaningful and for like the the interaction there to be something that like adds a lot to a game that you you just couldn't get without it. But this certainly doesn't seem a game to solve it but it's just like as we were playing i was thinking about that you know whenever we would see somebody it would just be like oh there goes a different person and it's just like it it feels like it should be more it should be more than that it should be like an event when you come across another person out there in the world everybody needs to be learning from 
journey. Yeah. I was thinking about this though. Like it's not to always just be that person, but Final Fantasy 14, I do feel like feels like that a lot of the times. Like you can't have interesting interactions with um, other players that you just run into. Like I've had a lot of interactions like that and that might just be the community. Uh, But I was thinking about it. I think... I do think that it is that it's this type of game is about like, it's a game meant for you to play so you can just hang out with your friends. It's like Mm -hmm. the same kind of thing as like Destiny, I feel like, where it's it's like an MMO light in the way that there's always more things to do. Like you're really you're really playing it with probably like a group of friends that you already have. Mm And so it's about hanging out with like that small group of like four people rather than caring about the interactions with anybody else that you meet along the way. Yeah, that's a good point. And that also just makes it more mysterious to me why this kind of MMO model was something that they they're pushing so hard with us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I could certainly see people like meeting each other on this and like, you know, doing event together if they're playing solo and then grouping up and whatever having fun but it just does not seem like that's the primary mode of playing this game i think i think you're totally right like it's a game that's you're meant to play with people you already know so like what does it add to have a bunch of other people doing the same thing but you can see them you know i I am curious if like the world boss kind of event has something like that it's like we yeah. obviously didn't get to experience it, but I mean, my only real like point of comparison is to think about certain things in Final Fantasy fourteen. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of like when you're like doing stuff in Bosja and you're just all running around then in the chat, everybody's like, oh, LFG. Oh, we need to go to this area. And it's just like everybody <laughs> running around in these massive groups and just like mm-hmm. it's really fun and it feels like all of the players are like forming this like little ragtag community to like do these things and i'm curious if like there is more stuff like that and maybe world bosses is somewhat satisfying that itch yeah i mean there's certainly i think there's certainly potential for it uh and the beta does run next weekend as well so there's another chance to find out if you happen to be online at like 3 a.m or whenever the fuck (laughs) these things appear yeah we we should try to do that maybe next week yeah, that'd be worth worth doing. Mm-hmm. But it also like I, I think the comparison to Final Fantasy fourteen really illuminates that like everybody always talks about what a weirdly positive community Final Fantasy fourteen has. And like it's not the case for everybody. Like everyone's had bad experiences there as well, but by and large it's it's a good community. And I really kind of struggle to see the same thing forming around Diablo four. Not because, you know, if you play Diablo four it doesn't make you a bad person, <laughs> but I think it is it's not a game that seems to enforce like interesting social behavior in the way that final fantasy 14 does uh it, you want to just is kind of putting you in this mindless combat mode but onto the kind of more talking about the core part of the game like it is about combat and like it is about making interesting builds so you have like this huge sprawling skill tree that you develop and I'll, i will say like despite all of my complaints with like basically every other aspect of the game when it got toward the end of our time playing the beta and we like had a full set of skills and we like had gear that was like giving us interesting bonuses and like adding new like giving us new skills even it got to be really fun uh and like i had a really good time at least like trying to make an interesting build out of what i had uh and you know combine skills in a way that like really complemented each other and you could like set up combos with yourself and there's like there's a lot of freedom and how you define 
uh, your character's abilities, which is something that was really missing from Diablo 3. That game really forced you to use certain abilities and gave you a very limited set of them. So I think like they've clearly like learned a lesson from that because I was having a great time with that and I can see it only becoming more complex uh, as, as you know, the game progresses. I don't know. It, it makes me, I'm kind of torn on how I feel about it because there is this really satisfying core to it. But I also know that like a lot of the fun was just like, I was like, we were playing together and like, just like kind of joking around the whole time. And it's, it's really difficult to see how it would maintain that momentum over like the full course of, of a, you know, however many dozens of hours long game. Yeah, it, I will say like the combat was fun, especially at the end. And like one of the things I think about in addition to the flame wall that I had, which was just like <laughs> hilarious, it's I do think the one of the funniest parts about this game is like making builds that just make combat absurdly funny like you had this oh, skill yes. where you just were knocking over enemies like all the time and it would happen to like massive enemies so you'd have these huge creatures just attacking us and you would just keep hitting them and they would just keep like tripping over themselves which was just funny to watch yeah there's one of the rogues like archery skills has that like if you hit someone i think it was if you hit them at close enough range or something it knocks them back and then if that enemy runs into another enemy it knocks them both down so it just be like our combat just became this like three stooges routine where i was just like standing in the middle of a group of enemies and just like they were just constantly like tumbling over each other uh and it's yeah there, there's like a slapstick element of it that's extremely fun but again relies on like playing with someone to make that funny you know what i mean mm. like it's it's less fun to experience that stuff and just kind of like laugh to yourself than it is to like be able to talk about how how silly it all is you know yeah so i i would say my experience of it was overall like pretty positive but in a very limited venue you know like i think if we were going to like have a group of people to like play this with every weekend or whatever it'd be a ton of fun but just as a game that like makes me like oh i can't wait to play more but like it really doesn't have that effect on me like it's 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 more of you know a, a background for a, a fun way to spend time with your friends than it seems to be like a game that i'm really excited to dig more into on my own i will say it did deliver the one thing i wanted from this game oh uh, god i can't believe it took us this long <laughs> to talk about this lilith is so hot perfect character design no notes yeah. um the whole time we were playing the game we were like where is she where is mommy <laughs> um, it was like every time she showed up we basically just cheered yeah <laughs> like, it was so funny because they like they hold her like off for so long yes where you're basically like you're chasing after her and they just keep teasing you. And I'm just like, where is she? Yes. Lilith is the, the antagonist of this game. She's like a big demon with horns who's like the embodiment of evil. And, and you're supposed to like be very afraid of her. And like she's the arch nemesis who's da da da. And yeah, the whole time we're just like, can we see her again, please? Can she come yell at us and uh, tell us how mad she is at us? There's the one like when she gets really introduced in that one cutscene, and we just were like hollering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we went pretty feral. So maybe uh, this game is good. good reason. So maybe it's actually going to be game of the year. Now that I think about it, mommy of the year. Oh, gosh, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's early. I'm sure you'll find. You'll find more more milfs. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. To fill the void that Jill Valentine left behind. Exactly. 
So aside from the Diablo 4 beta, uh, I think the other sort of big game that's been sort of making the rounds this week is reviews for the Resident Evil 4 remake have dropped. It will be out a couple days after this episode releases, but uh, Embargo was, I think, the end of last week. And it turns out uh, it's the remake is also a good game, just like the original was. Uh, it's getting like... It's getting a lot it's of getting, perfect scores. Right. Perfect and near perfect scores. Yeah. Like the the Metacritic on this game is kind of wild. Like Resident Evil 4 is a like widely beloved game, you know. So it's not surprising that it's reviewed well. But I think for both of us seeing that, it really laid out a pattern that's that's developed in the early part of this year, which is very well loved video games getting remakes and those remakes getting endless amounts of praise heaped onto them. People like basically considering them to be perfect games. And I think for both of us, we're both a little uneasy <laughs> with with the way that so many games seem to be getting this reception. Do you want to kind of like walk through your your feelings on this? Yeah, I think so. Like it's getting like it's really kicking into gear in 2023. And like it's very much set to be like a year of remakes. But it really like started at the end of last year with The Last of Us Part 1, which was like already a, a topic of much debate. And most people were like, well, this game isn't even that old. Uh, you could play it on PS5 with the PS4 remaster. It doesn't really need it. But then it came out and a lot of people were like, this game is amazing. It's the definitive way to play it. Like, it is amazing. I think less debate has happened about the new the games, like the remakes and remasters coming out this year so far, because most of them are games that are much older. Mm -hmm. So it's like we need these remakes to like play them on modern hardware for whatever reason. And I have like a very critical eye towards remakes and remasters and how we praise them because I'm like, what is the purpose of this and why are we saying it's like so good? Like if it's just, well, it's this thing we already knew was good and it's, you know, it's still good. I'm just like, <laughs> okay. And there's a larger conversation to be had with some some of these games, but it's like, one of the issues is that I just don't like encouraging the industry to focus on just remaking stuff. It does, by and large, to me, feel like a move that is being made by large companies to just make money yeah, um, rather sure. than an interesting artistic decision. And that's I mean, that's a bit of a blanket statement and we can get into it more with like specific examples. But I generally dislike remakes more than most. It gets it gets muddier when you have like remasters or ports because I do believe mm -hmm. it's important to like make games accessible to people, but I I think ports and remasters are sometimes good because it's like just just make the game as it is playable on modern consoles. Yeah. But remakes are a little bit muddier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I broadly agree with you on this. I really can't think of an example of a time when I was excited for a remake. And I think I was thinking about this and I was like, okay, like in, in all fairness, a lot of the games that have been remade and gotten this this huge amount of praise lately are games I'm not particularly interested in. So The Last of Us is not a game I like very much. Dead Space, Resident Evil 4, like they're just not my kind of games. But then even like Metroid Prime, which is a game that I love, it got this remaster and I like... I'll play it. Like, I still haven't played it, but it, it's not something that, like, I ever feel excited about. And I was trying to think of 
is there a game that like if they announced you know a, a big remake of it that I would actually be excited for? And I really can't think of any. Like it, it just doesn't excite me. Th- this idea that we're just going to take this thing that you already like and just make it again. I think the Metroid Prime example is also like one of the better case ones where it's like it was on the GameCube, so it's been like a couple of console generations since it came out. You probably don't have a good way to access it anymore. They seem to have just kind of like spruced it up and left things intact so people can enjoy this experience again. But like at the same time, it also makes me feel like there's so much energy being being used on just making the same thing again. And it's not as simple as just like if these games weren't being remade, then new games would be made by those same people with the same kind of care and the same amount of resources. But it's hard to feel like this isn't sapping some of the energy away from developers that could be used to to develop new ideas and to make new things and to you know create things that that surprise people. Uh, and I think that's where I start to get a lot more critical of of this this pattern. Yeah, I think one of the examples of a remake that I'm going to talk about, I think, is the exception and not the rule. And I mm-hmm. so and I think it's an interesting thing to talk about is Final Fantasy VII remake, right? Which Final Fantasy VII remake I openly love and I think it's yeah. incredible. But the thing is, is it's because it's an incredibly divisive game when it came out because it is not a remake, right? It's a That's, new yeah. story. It's like they are changing things. They are doing something new. It's a game about like really thinking about the original and reevaluating it and it's in conversation with like what it means to be Final Fantasy 7 it's not just taking game that people love and making it all pretty and giving it to a modern audience just to cash a check there mm-hmm. is like actually something really interesting going on with that game and how it's telling its story which is why like I think it's an exception, but not a rule, because Mm -hmm. take something like Dead Space or Resident Evil 4. I don't think it's adding like any value. I don't feel like there's truly an interesting creative vision. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily have evidence for this. So it's like weird to say this, but it's hard for me to believe that anybody working on these games went to somebody it's like hard for me to believe that the resident evil 4 remake team went to capcom and was like you know what we want to do you know what our passion project is remake resident evil 4 it's like that's not what happened (laughs) it's capcom was like we need to remake one of our favorite one of our most successful games so that we can make more money because the Resident Evil remakes are doing well, so let's do them more. Yeah, this is something I was actually thinking about this a lot earlier. The idea of authorship with remakes, where I, th- I think you're right. Like, you know, these are things that are probably they're very likely sort of imposed on dev teams from the top down, and it really makes me wonder about what the feeling is to to be a developer and to be uh, basically taking someone else's blueprint and just trying to do it again. Uh, and knowing that you're going to be expected not to change too much and to keep it to keep it faithful to the original, uh, it just seems like a very strange project to be involved in. And again, I I don't know this. I'm not a game developer, so I could be completely wrong. But it just seems to me there's a very strange relationship between the developer and the the game when you're making a remake because there's like there are very clear sort of boundaries on what you're allowed to do and what you are you know what you're expected to do. 
And it just feels like there's so much less room for putting yourself into a game or putting interesting new twists into it when you're basically taking someone else's work and making a sort of replica of it. I don't know. It makes me feel like who who made this game, right? Because like this game, this remake is being developed by one team, but the game, like the actual game, the ideas of it, the the you know, the skeleton of it is made by an entirely different team. So there's this weird ideas of of like ownership and authorship that just makes it hard for me to appreciate the value of it when there is this I don't know, this very strange relationship between the developer and then me as the player knowing that this is something that is being made again. I feel this weird tension when I play those games uh, that that makes me kind of, t- that turns me off of them a lot. I want to like shout out uh, Jen, uh, your old boss, my boss. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. She wrote this really, really good piece all about video game remakes mm-hmm. and like well, what developers think of them. And she interviewed developers behind Last of Us Part 1, Final Fantasy VII Remake, um, Resident Evil 4 Remake, and Like a Dragon Ishin. And she talked to all of them about like, what is it like to make a remake of a game? And why are like, why do you think it's popular? And like one of the things that they touch on is a lot of people are like, well, you know, nostalgia, we've come a long way. And at this point, the way the like nostalgia cycle works, we're kind of in a moment where now's really the first time we're going to be like doing, we can do these big nostalgia projects. One of the weirdest quotes that I do think is in this <laughs> article is from Matthew Gallant, who was the game director for The Last of Us Part One. And he mm-hmm. says, like, in response to the question, why are video games so well suited to remakes? He said, technology brings us closer to the original creative vision. And at first i was just like really for the last of us like there i'm i am sorry i know there's some i think the most interesting part about the remake is what it did with accessibility but mm-hmm. like beyond that i was like dude what do you mean I, it's yeah. not that different and i think it's an interesting thing where my one of my problems is i think it's i don't think it's easy to separate a game from the con- constraints of its development and bring it into the modern age, um, because I think it is important what decisions were made when making the game. Like a remake that is happening is there is a Silent Hill 2 remake. And we've talked about this and I wrote about it, but it's like the Silent Hill 2 remake, the way the developers have talked about it, feels like there's an intrinsic misunderstanding of the importance of the technological limitations on the game and how that actually impacted how that game told a story. I think it's not fully accurate to be like, well, we have the technology, you know, we can build him better. Um, (laughs) It's weird to say, because I do think that like, if you were to do like, if you were to take like Final Fantasy, you know, four or six or something and like update that, well, it's like you're changing a complete art style at that point, probably. And like, what are you doing? I, I don't, I find it weird to try to take these pieces of art out of their context and just update them for a new release. Cause that's what it feels like to me. Cause I don't really think most remakes are trying to add something new beyond ease of access and profit because I am much more a proponent of just making all games accessible to a modern audience, which to, to EA's credit, like you can still play the original dead space. 
they have not like removed it from stores to like in order to encourage you to buy the remake. You can play the original Dead Space, like the original Dead Space is on Game Pass even. So like that's good. And I and I much more like that. I like taking what you have and being like, listen, we just want to preserve this and you can play it whenever. I think it's weird to be like, you know, people won't understand old games. So we have to just make it to what people like now, because I also think that's very short-sighted. What's to say a remake now isn't just going to be outdated in five years when something like new happens, when we're like, oh, we're kind of over third-person action. And now these remakes, I don't know, maybe they'll be done again to like turn another profit. Like literally in the span of a decade, Naughty Dog released The Last of Us Part One three times. Yeah. For no real purpose besides to like make more money, Mm -hmm. frankly. Like it's an interesting comparison to think about it in context of other artistic mediums like TV and film. Sometimes there's a discussion where it's like, oh, well, I don't watch old movies because they're they're so old. Why would I watch that? (laughs) And it's like most people when you say that are like, that's stupid. Like it's a Mm -hmm. it's a movie. Watch it, like appreciate it for what it was. And you like maybe like understand the context of when it was made and why it's doing certain things. And like it'll you'll understand interesting pieces of like why they made it the way they did and why they're important. And remaking a movie isn't always a a necessary thing. And also in movies, like you typically don't shot for shot remake a movie. You're trying to tell a new story in some way. And with a game, it's like if you tell someone, oh, you should go play the original Final Fantasy VII or the original Resident Evil 4, they're like, yeah, but it's old and it's janky. I don't want to play it. And I don't feel like that's a good enough reason. And like with Metroid Prime Remaster, I I have a bone to pick with Nintendo specifically because I do think Nintendo has a tendency to just try to milk fans. Like they're closing the 3DS shop. They they have a tendency to like close ways that people can access their games without just buying a new version of it, which I think is a dangerous part about remakes. It's encouraging companies to just like milk what they have, not make something new because that means they don't you don't have to take a risk. You know it'll be successful. You know there's an audience for it. And then you can just make old versions inaccessible. So you basically force fans into buying the new version. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that's a lot of why I'm skeptical of these remakes and particularly the argument that it is some form of preservation because it's like straightforwardly not. Even if you're trying to hew as closely to the original as you can, like you are changing things. And I think that's like the argument that would make remakes much more palatable, right, is is the accessibility argument and is the idea of game preservation is like in a terrible state and there are games from only just a few years ago that are now unplayable. And that's not an easy problem to solve, right? Because you can't just take a game that was on the Dreamcast and just make that game work on the PS5. Like the hardware that you're you're playing it on is different. And so you need to completely remake a game for it to be able to run on that hardware. So it's not like it's an easy problem that they could just like, oh, they could just release these new ones. Like they would need to be remade in some meaningful way. But I think the argument falls apart when you start making changes to things that it's it's like you mentioned with Silent Hill 2 and why the idea that like these remakes are being made to live up to the original creative vision doesn't really hold water for me 
because it's like it takes the it makes it seem as if there's some kind of platonic ideal of the game out there and if they just had the technology they could have just made this game the way that it was meant to be and now they're able to do that which is just like not the case for any game or like any piece of art ever like you have an idea and then it changes through the execution the the conditions that you make any work of art under are going to change the outcome of it i think especially in games where like technological limits are so important those limits become part of the game they can become part of what makes it look or what makes it interesting in in any way you know like when i was saying i was trying to think of like is there a game that if you remade it i would be excited and so i was like thinking about my favorite games and thinking about like eco and the answer is like would i be excited for a remake the answer is not at all because that would that would involve some kind of changing the aesthetics or changing the way that it played to make it more palatable to modern audiences and it might make things smoother it might make it like a little easier to control it might make things like higher fidelity but part of what makes that game interesting is that that friction it's the the sort of dreamlike aesthetic it's it's the the you know wonky controls to some extent and just trying to strip all that out and just make it kind of go down smooth I just don't understand the appeal for that, you know? I also think that it it equates like better technology to a better game, which is mm-hmm. a reflection of like a lot of conversations that we've had, but like it ties into like the realistic graphics make a good game discussion or anything like that. Because it's just saying that like, well, we want it to look better with new with this new technology. And I'm like Who's to say that in 10 years we won't be like, oh, well, we have this new technology and that's actually what the vision would have been. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. the vision was what they were able to actually make. It's like, it's okay that they made the game within the confines of what they had. It's, I don't think it's a true statement inherently that it's like, well, this was the real vision. I do think there needs to be like more critical thought from like the media side on this. Which is like why I was like annoyed to see so many of these remakes getting like incredible scores. One of the things that like I think about a lot is especially like in New York on Broadway, one of the issues that happens a lot is revivals are a big thing where you basically take a show that hasn't been on Broadway in a while and you just you do a new production. And there are a lot of questions that happen when you do revivals and I think it's a good comparison because like specifically on Broadway, it's much more clear when there's like expressly financial interest in something. Broadway only has a finite number of theaters. So only so many shows can be on Broadway, which is a big deal. And if you're prioritizing things that you know people will come to see, you're not taking risks on new interesting work. That's why you will see like they'll just do a bunch of revivals of like classic musicals because it's like, well, people like this and they know it. So we're going to fill seats. So we won't be risking our money. We won't be risking our investment. But it also means that new work doesn't get seen on Broadway enough. And I do think theater critics are very good about this. Um, There's a theater critic who works for The New Yorker. Her name is Helen Shaw. She is, I I think, one of the best like arts critics working uh, alive today. But She writes a lot of really good reviews of, you know, theater and revival specifically, where she kind of talks about like the key thing that we have to think about when we're watching a revival is not, is this show good? 
we've already there like a lot of has been said about a show that we already have seen the question is why are they reviving it like Mm -hmm. what are they doing to it what are they saying what is like new casting like bringing out of this story that we've seen what is a new director bringing to the table what is their take on this story like what are you actually saying specifically like a couple things she just wrote recently um there's a there's a revival of parade on broadway right, right now which is um it's a famous show and you know like ben platt is starring in this revival it's a big deal and she wrote this really good review about it where she was basically like listen this show itself like i don't know why we are reviving it inherently there doesn't seem to be too much of a value. Or um, she wrote a review of a show called Merrily We Roll Along, um, which is coming to Broadway and it was off Broadway and she reviewed it and she was like, many people have revived this show since its original conception and we just need to stop because this show is inherently flawed and no production is able to fix the flaws. So we're just, we're mostly banking on the fact that it's a, that it's a Stephen Sondheim show and people like Sondheim shows. Yeah. Well, I think it's like a very interesting distinction there is that, like you said, like a show can be brought back many multiple times with like vastly different creative teams, which is just not the case for it. Like video game remakes are inherently a very different thing because like it's it takes a lot more time and money (laughs) to remake a video game than it does to bring back a play. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's also like a lot of like rights holder shit where generally like the the company at least who released an original game is going to be overseeing a remake of the game so there's kind of a limit to how how new that can feel and i think the fact that a show can be brought back multiple times and in all these different ways means that like there can be more value in that because you can see so many different interpretations of it and like new ones can play off of old ones and and things like that and it's just like not happening in video games to a large extent, anyway. Like we we talked about this before. Like my favorite play that I've ever seen was uh, was Faust, which was done in this weird kind of theater in the round way, where there were like four actors and they were just like switching parts the entire time, and like it, it brought something incredibly new to this show that's been done, you know, a million different times. But if it's just like every ten years you make Resident Evil Four look prettier. There's kind of no room for that experimentation and for new things to emerge from the work. And I think that's what makes the Final Fantasy VII remake so interesting, is because generally, like video game remakes tend to be made to essentially replace the original, where it's like we are re we're going back and remaking the game. So now this is the game. Whereas Final Fantasy VII is like we are remaking it with knowledge that the original exists. So they are meant to exist side by side and and the new the remake is meant to comment on the original and become a vastly different work because of its relationship to the original and that's i think something that like theater can do as well you know in much more frequently but video games by and large like that's just not an option for like all kinds of logistical reasons mm, i will say like <laughs> as much shit as i am happy to give square enix for a lot of things i do think they're a company that's making a lot of interesting decisions when it comes to mm-hmm. reflecting on their catalog of like totally games because um another game that i think about is uh stranger of paradise final fantasy mm-hmm. origin which isn't technically <laughs> a remake yeah. but it is a 
kind of reflection of the original Final Fantasy, told totally. in it's, a new it's way. In the same way, yeah, and like that kind of stuff is is actually fascinating to me, and I don't see it with a lot of other you know games and companies. Yeah, I think I would certainly have a much more positive outlook on remakes if they were that kind of like had more of that revival mentality of like, okay, why are we doing this? What are we adding to it? What is worth bringing back and what is worth adding that is new to this? But it's just like, yeah, it, it just doesn't seem to be. There's like no culture of that in games. Um, but like circling back on to the Resident Evil 4 remake, uh, one review that I really did like is from Silicon Era. Uh, yeah, it's Kazuma Hashimoto, yeah. uh, uh, who's who's a great writer generally. And the last line of the review, I just think like really sums up a lot of my thoughts about like remakes and stuff. And it's ultimately it feels like a byproduct of the current state of the industry where innovation comes secondhand to profit, which is ironic given the influence Resident Evil 4 had on the industry at large. Mic drop. Which is like, yeah, an absolute mic drop and mic drop and a, a great point. Mm-hmm. And it also really makes me think of how remakes can lead to sort of creative stagnation because Resident Evil 4 was this big leap. Uh, it was it was a real experiment and it ended up becoming this thing that that like the lessons that people took from Resident Evil 4 reverberated through the industry, like for good and bad. But if you're just remaking those things, those like the lessons have already been learned, you know, you're not going to be really adding anything else to the medium by just making a thing again. Uh, and it's just, yeah, I don't know. It just really drives home that, that feeling of remakes as missed opportunity to me where like, no matter how good and how influential a game was the first time that can only happen once, you know, mm-hmm rehashing it isn't going to pave the way for more interesting things in the future it's just kind of pulling us back and then sprucing up things that we've already come to take for granted i feel like it's a reflection of an industry trend by and large that wants to generally play things safe like Mm -hmm. i'm thinking of even things outside of remakes where i mean a game that (laughs) having already complimented square before in this episode, it's time to be mean to Square. Um, <laughs> like thinking about F- Final Fantasy 16, it's a game that I find so interesting to to like hear about because every preview, every time they show the game, what they talk about is they're like, oh, well, we wanted to do action like The Witcher, or so we so we got the Devil May Cry guy. We want to be like God of War's action. It's like all about just repeating things that were known to be successful. Mm-hmm. And it's for me, it's missing the key part of like its own innovation where there's no part of it where it's like, well, what's what are you doing new? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting example, too, because the other way they talk about it is like this game is like breaking with Final Fantasy tradition. It's like taking the series in a new direction. And I hear that and I'm like, great, take this beloved series and like strip everything recognizable out of it and make something new. But that's not what they're doing. You know, yeah, they're they're taking the series and stripping out what makes it like itself. But the thing they're they're not doing anything new. They're just taking what's already successful for other series so in the context of Final Fantasy, it's a very, you know, it's a bold experiment. But in the context of like games, it's 
basically playing it safe. You know, it is it is as predictable as a game can be. It, it seems, you know, from what we've seen. Yeah, it's like I don't even think it's interesting in the context of Final Fantasy because, like, for me, I the thing I respect about Final Fantasy as a series is, by and large, every entry has had something new that mm-hmm. it wants to do like where it's basically like listen we're just going to try something new and we're going to go off to do something on our own that other people aren't doing and it does this every time like you know from 5 to 6 was a jump and 6 to 7 was a jump and you know 7 to 8 had differences and then they it's like each one does something and it's like i even really respect final fantasy 13 because even though it like didn't succeed fully at what it was trying to do it wasn't Mm -hmm. trying to be some other game it wasn't like well i'm gonna copy xyz it was like we're just going batshit in a new direction yeah and if it works it works if it doesn't it doesn't but it wasn't trying to repeat other people's success yeah no exactly i think crucially it's like every game in the series is different but those were also things that the industry at large wasn't doing Mm -hmm. so it's not like Final Fantasy 13 saw the, a similar battle system somewhere and said, oh, let's try that for Final Fantasy. Like they were inventing new things, whereas nothing that I've seen from Final Fantasy 16 looks like it's really doing anything new. And that's like, yeah, I don't know. It, it just feels like such a such a missed opportunity. Yeah, well, um, I don't know how we ended up <laughs> talking about how unexcited we are for Final Fantasy 16. It yet all again. comes back to this. <laughs> oh man but yeah i mean outside of diablo and remakes that's kind of been it this week uh what have you been doing for fun yeah so i have been playing a slightly older game that is not a remake so paradise killer uh left game pass in the past week and uh it's a game that came out in 2020 and i was like you know reading about it before it came out and everything and like i was excited for it in the lead up to its release and it finally came out and i just never got around to playing it even though it seemed like it was completely my shit and um everything that i read about it after release made that seem even more true uh but then finally when game pass announced that it was like leaving the service i was like okay now's the chance to finally play it so i i dove in and played it and it Everybody was right about how good it was. Uh, It's a fantastic fucking game. It's the first game in a long time, actually, that I've just like, I started playing it. And then that was like basically all I did until I finished it. Like not, you know, I didn't play it in one session or anything, but it was just like, I just was so hooked on it. Uh, For anyone who is unaware, Paradise Killer is basically like a pretty, a surreal murder mystery game, I guess is, is how you could describe it. It's a, it's a first person game where you're like exploring this island uh, but as you're going around, you are you're investigating. There's this whole wild backstory that I'm not even going to try to explain. It's so complicated. Yeah, it's basically there's like this group of immortal people who recreate this reality once every however often, and this time when it's happening, the sort of ruling class, this like ruling council, is all murdered on one night under very mysterious circumstances, and your job is to figure out who did it. And the suspects are the last people left on this island before it like resets again so there's like i don't know eight or ten people i think and so your job is to walk around this island and look for 
clues as to like what could have made this happen and interrogate everyone who's left to try to figure out like motives and and get their alibis and things. And I think something that a lot of people have commented on and that like feels so true playing it now is like it does a really good job of making you feel like an investigator as opposed to a lot of like adventure games where you're just sort of picking up the right keys that unlock the right locks like at the right time. Like you really are like you'll talk to one person and they'll kind of let something slip and then you can go. They'll mention, you know, I was at this person's apartment that night or whatever. And you can then you can go there and like investigate that apartment and see evidence for if their story matches up and investigate the person who lives there and see if the timeline is right. There's a lot of like figuring out what things people say happened that are impossible and what then what that then tells you about what could have happened or why they want to cover this thing up. Uh, so it's just like it really puts you in the mindset of investigating this crime, which like the details of it, again, are very surreal. There's like demons and you go to space and there's like all this like blood magic, just wild shit is happening. And at the same time, it's like also just like an unbelievably gorgeous game. There are times when you can like look out like from like, you know, you're like a high perch or something and you can look out across the entire island and it gave me like such strong like mist vibes. But it's also like it's very like vaporwave within like the soundtrack and the kind of like art style of it, which is like very pretty, but also very kind of thematically resonant resonant for what the the kind of story of this island. And it's just like I got so sucked in again. And also like the writing is really sharp, like the characters all feel very different. It's just it's just such a cool feeling game that it makes you feel like in the way that sort of like private eye noir movies are always kind of like paint the protagonist as like a sort of doomed but cool person. You kind of can really embody that that same sentiment. You can feel that same way about your character. It's just like it's such a massive success. And I think especially in like the context of this conversation we just had about the the way that remakes can kind of stifle creativity. It's like even if I were, you know, really high on a game like the Resident Evil 4 remake, I feel like it, I would still have a hard time getting excited about it if I then played Paradise Killer and saw like just this wild new idea and new ways of expressing things and kind of new mechanics. And it's just such a it's such an explosion of interesting ideas packed into this one game that just like really steals my resolve on that idea that what we need is like more messy new experiments and not clean up versions of things we already like. Uh, it just, it rules. It's like, if you have not played Paradise Killer, like absolutely go play it. It's, it's probably, it's the best game I've played this year for sure. <laughs> and it came out three years ago. So absolutely love it. Absolutely love Lady Love Dies, who is the protagonist. We were talking about her after I played it, where it, she is the peak of like, do I want to be you or do I want to make out with you? Like, she's just, she looks so cool and she sounds so cool. And I just, it's both is the answer. It's a uh, really good game. I, I thought it was really funny when you like messaged me, you're like, oh, I'm playing Paradise Killer. This game is great. And I was like, I literally just wrote a rec for this game because I knew I knew it was leaving Game Pass. And I was like, this game is so good. Everybody should play it. Yeah, I I didn't read your piece because, again, reading inverse makes me too sad now. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you made some great points. Uh, it's, yeah, definitely, I like cannot recommend this game enough. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, that's what I've been doing. So what have you been up to this week? I have been watching season two of Shadow and Bone on Netflix. <laughs> it's this fun, like, it's based on a YA series of books. Um, I know it just has a lot of, like, magic and warfare and mystery and 
it's very fun. I really liked season one and season two just dropped on Netflix. And so we've been watching it. I really enjoy it. I think it's it's like a good example of like what just good YA stuff. It's really fun. In the very first episode, within 15 minutes, there's a, oh no, there's only one bed. And I was like... <laughs> Fuck yes. The show is great. I love it. I love it. Like, it's so fun. There's like a lot of good stuff in it. There's a one of the main storylines is about like a group of thieves that basically just do a bunch of like interesting heists and they have to like escape the police and they're framed for murder. And it's like their storyline is like really, really good. Also, season two has a like a new swashbuckling pirate captain who's super charming and fun. It's uh, it's a fun show. I, I very much enjoy it. We have prioritized watching this show instead of The West Wing for, you know, the, the, ne- <laughs> the next week. Yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds like a good plan. I Yeah, I, I watched the first season and was like, yeah, this is cool. It's kind of like it's it's popcorn, you know, like it's just it's just a fun time. Mm-hmm. So I'll probably pick up this one eventually. Uh, but glad you're enjoying it. Yeah. But with that, uh, that brings us to the end of this somehow very long episode of Girl Mode. Uh, as always, you can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, you can find us on social media as well. On Twitter, we are Girl Mode underscore pod. And on co-host, we are Girl Mode dash pod. And you can find me about those places at Robin Bombas. And I am at both those places at The Willow Row. We'll see you next time when we remake this episode. <laughs> it needs it. <laughs> they all do, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to have a weird laughing fit before I start talking, but let's still clap it, too. Okay. (laughs) What's wrong with me? (laughs) Fuck. Okay, get get the giggles out. I say to myself, futilely. I have to pretend to be a a little more together than I really am. Don't worry, I don't Um, think anybody thinks we're put together. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I don't think we give off that vibe. (laughs) No. <laughs> <laughs>